Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again and a very special thank you to our new Patreon supporters. We have Andrew Ogden and Mike Chant. This week we have a listener requested case for you and we receive a lot of listener request cases. Um, So thank you if you have written to us with ideas so far. So to many music fans or trivia buffs, the date 8th of December 1980 will hold a lot of significance. Mark, do you know who was shot dead on that date? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know. I didn't know it was that kind of exact date. I knew it was just before I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know who it is because I was actually there probably three months ago. Um, so it is, of course, John Lennon. Correct. Yeah. So Mark David Chapman, who was angered by John Lennon's lifestyle and frustrated by remarks like the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, decided to end the 40-year-old star's life by shooting him in the back. And today's case is one with chilling similarities. A musician loved by many, shot on stage on the 8th of December, albeit 2004. So when I began writing this case, it did soon become apparent to me that it wasn't going to be long enough as a solo case episode, so I decided to have a look into whether there would be any similar cases. And when I began my research, I felt like this would surely be quite a rare thing to sort of happen. A famous musician killed on stage whilst they're performing, and it turns out that I was right. I can't find any other cases at all from this century of a similar nature. And to be honest, there aren't that many at all ever. There have been numerous natural deaths of celebrities whilst on stage or people who've suffered illnesses which took their lives shortly after the performance. Um, There was the shocking death of Owen Hart, the wrestler who fell 78 feet to his death during a performance where he was supposed to be lowered from a harness into the ring and Steve Irwin was shot through the heart and died. But the death of a performer during their gig is really rare. I know of a couple. Mm -hmm. Um, Tommy Cooper. But was he killed? Or like was he? Oh murdered no, he wasn't. Or? He wasn't murdered. No, he just no. had a heart attack and died. But this yeah. is it, yeah. Like, oh, okay. So you're yeah. talking like literally, kind of killed. Murdered. God, yeah, yeah, or an accident. Or an accident as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like people like Tommy Cooper's story. There's um, a couple of comedians as well where they, um, people thought it was part of their act and stuff. So yeah, that's what they thought with Tommy Cooper. They was were just it? like, oh, this is this is part of the act, and he would quite often kind of feign illness or stuff like that on stage. So people just didn't really get it, and then it became apparent that he was actually dying. So Jeez. it's horrific, isn't it? Yeah. And this was the thing that I kind of realised was it's not unusual for someone to die on stage or straight after a show or something. But yeah, especially this century. Um, yeah, for someone to be on stage and be murdered or killed in something not natural, really unusual. Mm. I think it very nearly happened with Ariana Grande, didn't it, at yeah. her concert in Manchester? I know, obviously, a lot of um, a lot of people in the audience lost their lives, and I think, you know, she was probably quite lucky to escape with her life. I agree. Then. Yeah, I think yeah, so. that that really could have ended differently for her. Mm-hmm. There have been two major fires that claimed a number of lives, including those of the musicians performing on stage that happened this century. And this kind of took me way back to season one with the Denmark Place fire. I think I said at the time, it it sends shivers down my spine, the idea of being trapped inside a building with a fire. Yeah, I don't think there's anything worse. And I think with that fire, it was a club, wasn't it, in Mm -hmm. Soho in London? And very kind of like a bit like a townhouse. So over lots of levels, lots of different rooms. If you were in there and there was a fire raging through, you were literally trapped, weren't Mm -hmm. you? Yeah. 
So in 2003, at a venue in Rhode Island, the headlining band Great White set off pyrotechnics during their set, and because the music video for the song showed flames around the musicians, concertgoers initially thought that the stage catching fire was part of the act, and it was only when the flames reached the ceiling and began to get out of control did they realise that this was not planned. The band stopped playing, and the lead singer commented, wow, that's not good, which... I think is a bit of an understatement. No shit, yeah. (laughs) The flames then ignited flammable acoustic foam that was coating the walls and the ceilings that surrounded the stage. And within just one minute, the blaze reached what's called flashover, which is the temperature at which matter will combust. So this caused all the materials inside this nightclub, called the Station Nightclub, to catch fire. The band were rushed off stage and the crowd began to rush to the exits. Intense black smoke filled the club in under six minutes, and so it was really hard for people to see where they needed to get to to evacuate. In total, 100 people were killed by the heat, flames, smoke, and the ensuing stampede, and the guitarist for Great White was killed at some point. Some rumours have stated he was trying to rescue his guitar, and the show's MC was also killed inside. A further 230 concertgoers were injured. 132 people escaped physically unharmed, although many suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result. So the blame for the event happening was put onto the band's manager, who had set off the pyrotechnics as well as the owners of the venue. The band had apparently not been given permission to use the pyrotechnics, although the manager claimed they had been. And the two owners of the nightclub should have ensured that there was a sprinkler system put in when they renovated the building from a restaurant to a nightclub. If this had been in place, it would have contained the fire long enough to allow everyone to evacuate safely. So the three were individually charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter, which was two charges per death. These charges were for criminal negligence, manslaughter and misdemeanor manslaughter. So the owners of the nightclub were brothers Jeffrey Doridian and Michael Doridian, and they pleaded not guilty to the charges And they were scheduled to receive separate trials, but they changed their pleas from not guilty to no contest, so therefore avoided a trial. Michael Doridian received 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation. And Jeffrey received a 10-year suspended sentence, three years probation and 500 hours of community service. And the judge wrote a letter to the victim's family explaining that the lack of a trial was so it would not, quote, further traumatise and victimise not only the loved ones of the deceased and the survivors of the fire, but the general public as well. And he added that the difference in the brothers' sentences reflected their respective involvement with the purchase and installation of the flammable foam. And the pair were also fined $1.07 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees, four of whom died in the blaze. I um I don't think we've covered involuntary manslaughter. No, sorry, corporate manslaughter before. No, um, I don't that's think probably so. one it's probably one of the last bastions of crime for us to cover. Mm. So we've kind of covered it essentially there, haven't we? It's really interesting, isn't it, that whilst they did not set the fire or any of that, they're still getting quite harsh sentences, I think, and I think quite fair. I think that's quite right. Um Yeah. yeah. As part of their involvement. Yeah, someone has to take responsibility. Mm. Um, And then Daniel Bichal, I think that's how you say his surname. What do you think? I think that's correct, yeah, Yeah. from what I can see here. Daniel Bichal, the manager for Great White, pleaded guilty. This was actually against his lawyer's advice, but he pleaded guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter. And he did this in an effort to, quote, bring peace 
I want this to be over with, and he appeared really remorseful during his sentencing. Choking back tears, he made a statement to the court and to the families of the victims, and in it he talked about how he wished he could speak to the people that were affected by the tragedy, to apologise and express how sorry he was, but that he knew there was nothing he could say that could undo what happened that night, and he said he couldn't forgive himself for what happened, he'll never forget that night, and he'll never forget the people that were hurt by it. He said he didn't expect anyone to forgive him, but that he was so sorry. God, he does sound remorseful, doesn't mm -hmm. he? I think the fact that they weren't supposed to use these pyrotechnics and then he was like, yeah, we're going to use them. He knows he fucked up there. Yeah. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison with four years to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation. So the other fire that claimed the lives of musicians performing at the gig was in Bucharest in Romania. Goodbye to Gravity was a band from the area who wanted to put on a free concert for their fans in a venue called Club Collective to celebrate the release of their new album, Mantras of War. And the gig took place on the 30th of October, just a day after the band announced on Facebook that they were putting on the event. And they must have been seriously popular because the gig was filled with roughly 400 people. Doors were open to the public at 8.30pm and the gig got underway with numerous pyrotechnics and lights used in the club. And the club was a former shoe factory. The band hadn't made it a secret they were going to use pyrotechnics. It was a key part of their plan to bring the music alive visually for the crowd. And I'm sure you know where this is going. At about 11 o'clock, a spark from the pyrotechnics set one of the pillars alight. And the pillars were coated with, yep, highly flammable soundproofing foam which is just something that comes up a lot in fires in nightclubs. I don't understand why they use something so flammable. But I suppose it's it kind of insulates the sound and, mm -hmm. you know, they, they can't, they've got to be careful with noise levels because yeah. of the local councils and stuff. So it's I suppose it's the most, issue, isn't it? yeah, it's like the most effective way of insulating the sound, but obviously it's highly flammable. Mm. So the fire spread rapidly to the ceiling and caused the ceiling to collapse. The venue only had one door, which was 80 centimetres or 31 inches wide, and the rush of all the panicked concertgoers caused a stampede. It was a two-part door with only one half open, so some people were trying to smash their way out of the other side, but people were climbing on top of one another to get out, and many were trampled. Other people smashed windows to try and create another way out, and during the fire, the guitarists for the band died. And do you know what really annoys me as well? Like those um, two-part doors when they only have one door open, that pisses me off in everyday life, let alone if I was trying to escape yeah. a fire. Mm -hmm. The venue also had no sprinkler system and no way to shut off the electricity in an emergency. There was only one small fire extinguisher inside, nowhere near big enough, and most of the surfaces of the walls were coated in that flammable soundproofing foam as well. Club Collective was only authorised for 80 seats, but there were over four times that many people inside for that gig. And the owners, of course, tried to say that they were not to blame for this, but investigators found in the club a partly burned document, which was a rental agreement from the club owners to the band, which stipulated the band had to pay rent of €500 Euros should they fail to gather a crowd of at least 400 people. Band's drummer died on the 8th of November and the bassist died on the 11th. Their vocalist suffered severe injuries, ending up in intensive care, but he seems to have made a recovery from what I found online. Nurses and doctors from a nearby maternity hospital who were on duty that Friday rushed to the aid of the screaming injured people. 
They provided first aid and emergency services were called and there were so many people who needed help that some people were taken to hospital in ambulances but many others were driven in cars by locals or by taxis and a field hospital was set up close to the scene with off-duty doctors and nurses from nearby hospitals being called in to work um, to help out and nearby residents even housed concert goers with less serious injuries overnight. 27 people lost their lives that night and on the 1st of November three more victims died in the hospital. Two more victims died the following days. The 7th of November nine patients died. On the 8th three more died and on the 14th of March months later the death toll hit 64. One year and nine months after the fire on the 29th of July 2017 a survivor whose girlfriend had died in the fire committed suicide. Oh that's sad. Yeah that kind of reminded me of the Hillsborough tragedy. Yeah, yeah, because didn't we have something very similar in yeah. that? and I think this person um, whose girlfriend had died, I think that person still should be counted as one of the victims from this fire. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There is so much more that I could talk about with this case. Um, just out of like being a bit nosy into the case, I looked into it further, and it shook Bucharest to its core. The Prime Minister was kind of amidst scandals galore anyway, and this fire actually caused the Prime Minister to resign. Um, once again it was negligence and greed and poor planning that had caused the deaths and still nothing like today's case today's case is a case that really altered the face of music and gigs forever today's case has been requested by someone who has listened to the show since the very beginning one of my best friends lisa Thank you so much for sending me the idea because until I began researching for the case, I had no idea what really had happened. Um, The musician in question is a favourite for a number of our friends. So to write this episode, I asked our our friends about him and one person in particular, Craig, was able to give us loads of information, which was great. So Dimebag Darrell, born Darrell Lance Abbott, was an American musician and singer. He was born in 1966 and his dad was a country music producer His mum worked a lot of different jobs, cleaning, assembly lines, stuff like that. She had an incredible work ethic, which Daryl picked up from her, and he began to play the guitar at the age of 12. With his brother Vincent, whose stage name is Vinnie Paul, and some other guys, he started the band Pantera. And Daryl was so good at the guitar that he would win any competition he entered, and apparently, locally, he was asked to stop entering competitions because he wasn't giving anyone else a chance to win. (laughs) His brother played the drums and the pair really loved making music together and they sound like really close siblings. Daryl was initially known on stage as Diamond Daryl. He had a very successful music career during which he is considered as one of the most influential guitarists in heavy metal history. The brothers joined their first band Pantera and they released their debut album in 1983 when Daryl was just 16. He also played guitars for bands such as Anthrax, and as well as being named in numerous lists of influential or top guitarists by people like Gibson and Rolling Stone magazine, Daryl was also known for being an all-round nice bloke. He always had time for his fans, and he'd ensure that he chatted with them and signed autographs. And in fact, Craig was telling me about one friend who has Daryl's autograph tattooed on him from a meeting that they had with both Dimebag and Vinny at Download Festival. Oh, wow. Yeah, really cool. That is hardcore Mm -hmm. fandom. So the pair were being mobbed for autographs by the fans, but they really made sure they took the time to chat with everybody. And this encounter was in the summer of 2004, just months before Daryl was murdered. And Craig also said, it's really well known that he was the nicest guy you could ever meet. He had so much time for his fans. 
as he himself was a huge music fan. When the brothers released their first album in 1983, they were a glam metal band inspired by Kiss, Van Halen and Judas Priest. They wore spandex, makeup and hairspray when they were on stage. And as a glam metal band, they released a few more albums, but their musical influences began to shift to more heavy music. And then in 1986, their lead singer was replaced and their sound changed for the subsequent albums. The band got bigger and they released their first major label album in 1990. Their third label album debuted at number one in the Billboard 200 in 1994. Wow, that's success! super successful band yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. They were one of the 90s most uncompromising metal acts and they were also one of the most successful. During the 18-year career of the band, they sold more than 7 million records. Wow. Yeah. The band split in 2003 and it was a bitter split that really happened due to rising tensions The brothers went their ways, but together, and they formed a band called Damage Plan. Daryl loved to party. His signature drink was what's known as a black tooth grin, which is crown royal whiskey with a small dash of Coke. I'd love to have a drink that I named or I created. What would be your drink? I don't know. I know yours. Yours would just be a glass of red wine. Um, oh, my sig- my signature, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you me. love it though, don't you? You absolutely love it. Uh, um, I don't know what mine would be. Um, vodka Red Bull is my signature drink. Do you know what? I did have to have Red Bull in there somewhere. Yeah, I'm mm. just like really scummy and uh, <laughs> like stuck about 20 years ago. But I love a vodka Red Bull, particularly um, if I'm a bit knackered and I'm going out and it's the beginning of the night. That's my go-to drink. Here we go. Tell us what your signature drinks would be, guys. If you yeah, get in touch, know. guys. Let us know. Give us some inspiration. Yeah. So he had changed his stage name from Diamond Daryl when he moved on from the glam metal style of music, and because he smoked weed too, a dime bag of weed was where his stage name Dime Bag came from. He could... well, that's disgusting drug abuse. Uh, it's just weed, though, isn't it, Mark? No, that's wrong. <laughs> He could and he would play absolutely wasted live, but he'd never miss a note. So the other person in today's case is a man called Nathan Gale. Nathan was born on the 11th of September 1979 and was from Ohio. He studied construction and electrical work and graduated in 1998 from vocational school, but not long afterwards he developed a drug addiction. Okay. He lived with his mum and occasionally would work a minimum wage job had a few run-ins with the law and became really paranoid, accusing his mother of watching him. She put this down to his drug abuse and after a particularly violent altercation, she evicted him and he became homeless. Nathan agreed to go through um, a drug rehabilitation programme, so his mum let him come home. Nathan had a criminal record and like I said, he had a few run-ins with the law, but these were not for any violent crimes. He'd been convicted of criminal trespassing in 1997 for skateboarding at a Kmart and in 1999 for repeatedly sleeping in a public park. In 2000, he was charged with receiving stolen property in relation to a theft of a set of scales from a construction company that employed him and he was also fired from that construction company. In February 2002, Nathan enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, which made his mum really proud, and it seemed to show her that he had successfully recovered from his drug problems. However, this spell in the Marines was short-lived, as he was discharged in October 2003. He told his mother that this was due to a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Now, there's no 
definite proof of this because the discharge notices are all kind of sealed at that time so nobody knew for sure um but basically that's what he's told his mum he also has told a mechanic where he was working and he told his boss when he was working as a mechanic that he was suffering from schizophrenia and the department of veteran affairs had kind of secured that job for him his mum stated that she doesn't believe he was taking any medication for schizophrenia Nathan was an offensive lineman for Lima Thunder, which was a local semi-pro football team. And he then continued to move from job to job and also continued with his run-ins from the law. On November 17th, 2004, Nathan was arrested for driving with a suspended license. And by December 2004, he was working as a construction worker and he lived alone in an apartment in Marysville. Is it Marysville or Marysville? Marysville, Marysville. I would say, yeah. People have said he had begun talking to himself, that he would interact with an imaginary dog and that he would also laugh to himself for what others thought was no reason. And his friends, who now call themselves ex-friends, gave him the nickname Crazy Nate, which I just thought was a bit harsh, really. Crazy Nate. That's really sad, yeah. Mm. I mean, this is, what, in 2004? Yeah. So I know we've kind of moved on an awful lot, haven't we, in terms of mental health awareness, but that's not that long ago. That's only 15, 16 years ago. And I'd hate to think people would speak about others who were blatantly suffering from psychosis like that now. Yeah, exactly. Nathan was an imposing figure. He was six foot three and over 250 pounds. His behaviour was more than a little strange and his friends began to distance themselves from him. In his apartment, he had written notes that said things like, you'll see me come alive. I'll take your life and make it mine. This is my life. I'm gone. Get me. He was a frequent visitor to a tattoo shop over the road from his apartment, going in almost daily, having tattoos and piercings done, but the staff tried to keep him away from their customers because they said he gave off weird vibes and gave everyone a weird impression. And again, this word weird, I just think, yes, I think nowadays we wouldn't be quite so insulting with it. No, no, we wouldn't. The owner of the tattoo shop said that Nathan was so infatuated with guitarists that he had begun trying to hang out with one of the tattoo artists when he found out he played guitar. And on the morning of the 8th of December 2004, he had made a scene in the studio arguing with the staff about equipment that they wanted them to buy for him. Nathan was often found listening to Pantera and he especially listened to them on the bus before games because he was a football player to prepare himself psychologically. He'd been a fan of Pantera since high school and retained a fixation with the band after its separation in 2003. Nathan was convinced that Pantera had stolen lyrics from him and he reportedly told friends that he was going to sue the band. He once asked a friend if he could practice songs with that friend's band and claimed that they were his songs and the guys called him out on it saying they're Pantera's lyrics but he was adamant that they were his initially and he also told people that members of Pantera were attempting to steal his identity. So I mean this guy is really suffering isn't he? Yeah I mean that's like paranoid psychosis isn't it yeah, I would say. paranoid. Like delusional um yeah it's kind of textbook isn't it? Mm-hmm. In April 2004, he saw Damage Plan at a gig in Cincinnati, near to his hometown. He ran onto the stage, but was apprehended by security before he could reach the band. He resisted them, damaging a lighting rig as the security guards forcibly removed him, and he caused that to fall down. The band continued playing whilst this went on, and Nathan was was thrown out of the club. In total, his antics caused around $2,000 worth of damages, but Damage Plan chose not to press charges, 
and the vocalist even joked about the incident later in the performance, and because the band didn't want to return to Cincinnati for court hearings, they chose not to take things further. For reasons that will become clear, it's impossible to find out what led Nathan Gale to want Dimebag Daryl dead, but that was his next aim after that gig. So let me take you to the 8th of December 2004. Damage Plan were due to headline a gig at the Arosa Villa in Columbus, Ohio after three or four warm-up acts. They arrived in the early afternoon, the crew began to set up and the band chilled out on their tour bus. Just after half three that afternoon, Vinny stepped off the bus and began chatting with some fans who were waiting around for autographs, chats etc. And Dimebag joined them soon after and he made a joke to a fan about his leopard print fluffy jacket and ridiculous looking hat he was wearing and they got a crew member to take a photo of the pair. In the photo he's doing a heavy metal salute, he's smiling, he's leaning in close to the fan and he made a joke about how this photo would be a classic. Sadly he was right, it would go down in history as one of the last photos taken of him. So I thought that was really chilling as well, you can find that photo online and it's just, oh... It's always always really freaks sad. me out, doesn't yeah. it? Whenever we see CCTV footage or photos mm-hmm. of people just before they they died, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I just find it ever so weird. It really um, is. You can almost, I don't know. Can you almost kind of see it in their face that something's about to happen? I don't know. Well, this it's is just what's with this one. You can't at all. He just looks so happy, and from what Craig was saying about how he loved his fans, you can see that in this image. They say, I think there's like in Japanese culture, there's something, I can't remember what the term is called, but it's something that they say you can see this kind of particular um, shade of white to somebody's eye or to somebody's eyes just before they're about to die. Wow. So it's it's something that like, I don't know, maybe you can almost see into the soul and Goodness. and see that they're, they're about to die somehow. But it's like this really known thing in Japan. Isn't that weird? That's quite beautiful as well. Like That's amazing. Yeah, but can you imagine seeing that in someone's mm. eye? Like and thinking, what's going to happen? Yeah. So their sound check went without incident, and then Dimebag, who remembered playing the place in Pantera's early days, thanked the club owner for booking Damage Plan. The two brothers stood by the side of the stage to watch the opening band, and the venue had a capacity of about 600, but only around 250 people were there for the night. Gail had been hanging out in the car park while the gig got started and when he was asked why he wasn't inside he'd made a comment that he was waiting for damage plan and he didn't want to see what he called shitty local bands which I thought was so savage. Mm, that is a bit harsh. He did attempt to board the damage plan tour bus before the show but he had no success and the manager of the club thought Gail was kind of a harmless crazy fan just trying to talk to the band so and that he didn't really want to pay for a ticket so some of the guys who helped set up for the bands told him to leave but of course Nathan Gale wasn't there for music and he didn't want to pay for his entry so he needed a new way into the gig there was a six foot high wooden fence surrounding the venue's outdoor patio and several gig goers helped him thinking it was a good joke he jumped the fence and made his way into the club through a side door Damage Plan had made their way on stage and Gail went towards the stage too, past pool tables, a bar and the sound booth. And what's really chilling is there's video footage being filmed from the side of the stage that you can watch. 90 seconds into the band's opening song, Gail reached the left-hand side of the stage and witnesses later thought he wanted to stage dive. People have since described him as looking angry or determined and one person has described it as he was on a mission. He was walking like he was going into battle. Gail made his way onto the stage. He pulled out his Beretta 9mm handgun and headed straight for Dimebag Darrell. 
People at the side of the stage saw him open his mouth to yell something, but nobody knows for sure what that was. Damage Plan's tour manager, Chris Paluska, told police that he was shot first, trying to prevent Gail from getting onto the stage, that he grabbed Nathan Gail but was shot in the chest. He ran to the side of the stage where someone helped him to lie down. Dimebag was headbanging his hair in his face when Gail fired at him. He fired three shots at the back of the guitarist's head and one that hit him in the hand. And shockingly, no one knew exactly what was happening at first. The crowd thought it was part of an act and they began pumping their fists. Some people just figured that a speaker had blown and the barman thought it was some sort of firecracker or cap gun and that the band were performing with some kind of gimmick. So he continued to pour drinks for his customers. But then Dimebag hit the floor, one leg at an unnatural angle and his guitar making horrendous feedback squeals Mm. and the music stopped. And that would have been a really disturbing sound, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Like just one of those weird sounds. It's horrendous. And like I said, there's, there is video. It's not the best video, but someone had set up a camera to film from the side of the stage and you can see this happening. His brother stood up from behind his drum kit and watched the carnage unfold. Gail continued to shoot at random, now also firing into the crowd. The band's head of security, Jeffrey Thompson, was trying to help the guitarist, but Gail fired at him, hitting him in the chest, back and thigh. Gail continued shooting, and brave people tried to apprehend him. One guy grabbed his wrist, but Gail shot at him, so he fled. And this man said he immediately heard three more gunshots that he believed were aimed at his head. Most of the crowd had fled out of the nightclub, but so many brave people tried to subdue the shooter or help the injured and dying. At least 10 people placed frantic calls to 911. Several were from inside the club and one of the calls was made by a woman called Lisa who said to the operator, the person is still loose with the gun, please hurry, please. Billy Clark was among the fans who climbed over the barricade and reached for Dimebag Darrell who was bleeding out on stage. Billy asked his two friends to help him and the trio managed to pull the guitarist off the stage and carried him down to the floor. Mindy Reese, a registered nurse from Columbus, rushed forward and did chest compressions for 15 to 20 minutes, but Dimebag was near to death. And by the time the paramedics arrived, there was nothing they could do to save him. And I I do kind of wonder, you know, when people start administering CPR and doing chest compressions, if someone's got an open wound, is that, I mean, I I really don't know, but I'm just kind of thinking like keeping the blood circulating around the body is probably not a great thing if someone's got an open wound isn't it just going to bleed more i am not going to say that i know any sort of proper medical advice but what i believe is that as long as you're stopping the blood from coming out of that wound oh, of so you're applying pressure yeah. to the wound yeah which you should also do i guess i think you need to keep the blood pumping otherwise they're going to die anyway yeah of course yeah it's almost like a no-win situation but i suppose if you can yeah. stem the flow of the blood then yeah I, I mean she would have known what she's doing if she's a nurse yeah, exactly. it was just suddenly just occurred to me i was like hmm. i think you're completely right i think as long as somebody's stemming the blood flow from coming out you're mm. keeping that person alive until the paramedics get there who can perhaps do more. Yeah. I believe. Please don't use us as your CPR Yeah, first. please. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We fucking don't know anything. 
Concertgoer William Weaver climbed on stage to try and help Geoffrey Thompson, who was led on the stage bleeding. William knew CPR as well from his job in security, and so he began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on the victim with another fan called Jimmy Van Folsen, who was doing chest compressions. The pair actually kept him alive the whole time, but sadly he died in hospital later. And William has since talked about how later on, when he was trying to wash blood off his hands, he just suddenly involuntarily screamed with the terror of what he'd been in the middle of. Nathan Gale also shot Al Villa staff member Erin Hulk, who attempted to take advantage of the shooter reloading. Erin had struggled with Gale long enough for a number of the other musicians and music lovers to escape, but he was shot six times. And Nathan Bray, a fan who heroically attempted to give Dimebag CPR, was also shot in the chest whilst he was attempting to save the guitarist's life. Gale's shooting spree injured many others too, such as Damage Plan's tour manager, their drum tech and people in the crowd. Nathan Gale then lost his glasses and some people wonder if this is the reason that he then took stage technician John Brooks as a hostage. John Brooks was shot three times during a struggle with Gale and he reportedly pinned him to the floor and John said that he could feel the gun pressed against his head while the attacker was shouting, don't move, don't move. And people are wondering perhaps whether Nathan was looking for his glasses at that point that's why he had him pinned to the floor and perhaps he was trying to find his glasses. Mm, it does sound it, doesn't it? Yeah. Talk about bad planning. Like, I know. Just put contacts in for the day. <laughs> You're going to go on a shooting spree. Yeah. You don't want to risk losing your glasses in a kind of dark, dingy, smoky club. Mm-hmm. But he didn't manage to find his glasses because they were later found on the floor. He began to try and make an escape using John as his human shield. So he continued to use John as a hostage to shield himself, making his way to the exits, when from the backstage area, Officer James Nigamir appeared, responding to a 911 call less than three minutes after it was made, and he was carrying a 12-gauge Remington shotgun. He had just started his shift when the reports of shots being fired began to come in, and he rushed over, and as he pulled into the car park, he grabbed his shotgun and made his way towards the back of the club doors, Other officers were going in through the front and the side doors against the crowds of concertgoers who were rushing out and they were screaming to the police, get in there, get in there, he's killing people. So it appears that Nathan realised the police were coming for him and so he changed direction, still using his hostage as a human shield but heading towards the back door instead and one officer said he thought perhaps Nathan had been spooked. The police at the front entrances also believed he was thinking about shooting at them so this was such a hostile target for them. Gail was still moving towards the rear of his club of the club with his hostage, so Nigamia took aim and from about twenty feet away he fired once and this one shot killed Gail. God, I, that is an amazing shot. I know, with a shotgun as well. Bloody from, hell. From twenty feet. He immediately told bystanders and furlough officers, I had to do it. I had to do it. John rolled away from the gunman's lifeless body and was given medical assistance and some of the bystanders actually had to be ordered out of the building because they began swearing at and kicking Nathan Gale where he lay dead. And I think you can kind of understand why they would do that. Yeah. But obviously you can't do that. (laughs) No, of course. Like, the scene has to be preserved even if you're not thinking about, like, not kicking someone when they're dead. (laughs) Hmm. After the shooting had ended, Lieutenant Rick Show of the Columbus Fire Division was the first paramedic to enter the club, and he described the scene as 
there was an overall feeling of shock and despair and agony about what had just happened. Dimebag was on the floor, Geoffrey Thompson and Erin Hulk were on the stage, and Nathan Bray was in the dressing room. He said he considered all of them to be in level one trauma, or critical condition, and Nathan Gale was pronounced dead. Additional firefighters arrived and took their stretcher and other equipment in, and it was just six minutes after everything had begun, and people were still leaving. And I think as what happens quite often is just six minutes. Such a short mm-hmm. amount of time. Isn't that weird? Yeah, when you break it down mm-hmm. exactly what happened in that time, the amount of people that were killed and injured. Yeah. And really it's just six minutes. Crazy. One of the firemen said, some were screaming, some seemed to be in shock with blank stares on their faces. And Lieutenant Show directed them to Dimebag's body where they found Mindy Reese, that nurse performing CPR, and they asked her to continue while they hooked up monitors and checked his condition. His heart activity had stopped and they pronounced him dead. They then moved to the dressing room to assess Nathan Bray. They prepped him for the ambulance to hospital and two other firefighters pronounced Erin Hulk dead and two other firefighters found William Weaver and Jimmy Van Fusen performing CPR on Jeffrey Thompson, who they loaded into an ambulance also. Paramedics found the tour manager, Chris Paluska, slumped against a vehicle in the parking lot. He was still conscious, but he had a serious chest wound. And John Brooks, the guy who was taken as a hostage, had fled to the band's tour bus. So both men were taken to hospital too. And luckily, both of them made full recoveries. Nathan Gale still had 35 rounds of ammunition left when he was killed. The list of the dead could have been so much longer if it wasn't for Officer Nigamia, and he told MTV News in 2005, I knew from that distance I could shoot the suspect as long as I aimed high enough and I knew I wouldn't hurt the hostage. At that point, almost immediately, I fired. It was all over, and whilst it must have felt like a million years had passed, from Gail's first shot to the one that killed him, just over three minutes elapsed. And so much just changed in those three minutes. Many people were injured physically. Some, like the band's tour manager, taken to hospital. Dead at the scene were Dimebag Darrell, Erin Hulk, the staff member, Jeffrey Thompson, the manager, and Nathan Bray, the fan. They both died shortly after in hospital. Dimebag's brother Vinny was sat in the front bar, wrapped in a blanket, clutching his brother's guitar. Shortly after, he went to the tour bus and he led in his brother's bunk, weeping. Vinny did continue with his musical career, although he appears to have never quite recovered from losing his brother. He formed the band Hell Yeah in 2006 and went on to have many more hits with this group as well. And Craig, who I mentioned at the beginning, was fortunate enough to tour with and hang with Vinny. When wow, the band that's he, so cool. I know. He was playing in a band called Sacred Mother Tongue, who was supporting Hell Yeah in 2013, which he said was like an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And just an aside, if you are a metal fan and you'd like to check out Craig's music, he's currently in a band called Dishonor the Crown. Got to give him a little plug there, haven't I, Mark? Yeah, of course you have. I'm not a metal fan, so I won't be checking it out. But um, wow, that is really cool, isn't it? To tour with them. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's really, you know, if you're into that, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. To hang out backstage with somebody that's one of your idols. All the drugs and the drinking, shit (laughs) like that. Great. I'm I'm not sure. I don't think anybody does drugs, Mark. That's naughty. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so Vinnie Paul died on June 22nd, 2018 at the age of 54 and he is buried beside his mum and his brother at Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery oh. in Arlington, Texas. 
know. So he didn't li- he didn't live a very long life. No, age of fifty four he died. And I I do wonder if it's one of those things where the heartbreak just kind of he never got over that and it he just didn't cope very well. I think mm. he died from we do like see heart attacks and heart issues. Yeah. I think it's almost like this going through such traumatic event and the stress of that. I do think it has consequences on long-term health and we, mm. we have seen that loads we've seen it when uh, people have lost a child and and they they don't go on to lead a healthy or long life yeah. not always the case obviously but you do see it quite often anyone who had witnessed the events wouldn't be forgetting it anytime soon the singer for volume dealer said damage plan loved us they had told us to stay after the show they were going to talk to us and have drinks with us it was a local band's dream maybe coming true turned into a nightmare and a fan called Justin, who unsuccessfully tried to pull Dimebag off the stage, said he cried off and on for a week after the shootings. And he said at the time, I'm a 28-year-old metalhead covered with tattoos and this is killing me. My life's changed. I'll move on from it, but it will never go away. And whilst he was proclaimed a hero by everyone and was totally justified in his actions, Officer James Nigamia suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety. Even Nathan Gale's mum told the media that the man who killed her son was a hero and she said he was doing his job. You don't know how many lives he saved with that shot. That's a horrible thing for him to have to do. He was a hero. I agree with everyone on that. And isn't that brave of her to admit that? Yeah, it is. In those circumstances, that's still her son. Exactly. Whatever he's done, you know, there is an unconditional love there, but she can see the bigger picture and it was right Mm. that he had to die then to save up to, you know, a couple of dozen other lives. And what I found really sad with his mum was afterwards she almost seemed to blame herself a little she'd bought him that gun for christmas when he'd come out of uh, when he'd gone into the marines so she thought to herself he's got away from his drug addiction i'm going to get him something because he liked going to target practice she then felt guilty because she'd bought him that gun there's a really heartwarming article with her where i really feel for her because her son did what he did and obviously she's never to blame but she obviously did carry some of that guilt herself you would always question yourself as a parent. Mm. Where did I go wrong? Was there something in the upbringing that I did that has caused him to turn out the way he turned out? But obviously yeah. it's not that. It's mental illness, isn't it? Yeah. Unfortunately, none of this was enough to help James, who moved to a police desk job and eventually quit the police force. And by 2011, he got a civilian job. I'm not sure where he is now, but in 2011, he was still seeing a counsellor because of the emotional distress and he'd got that civilian job. And then in 2014, he spoke to the Columbus Dispatch saying that the blood and carnage he had witnessed turned out to be too much for him to handle. And a quote from that article was, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety disorder. Cops are regular human beings. Things affect us the same way they affect everyday citizens. We relive it and have to deal with the aftermath. So, yeah, I feel really sorry for him. Mm. He did mm. what he had to do. And actually, everybody's nobody's going to deny that he did the right thing. But yet, he had to leave a job that he enjoyed. Mm. And that that is, you know, that's not just a job. That's a vocation, isn't it? Mm. It's a lifestyle, like that, isn't it? They're a yeah, family, a huge, aren't they? Yeah, a huge part of his mm-hmm. life that's that's been forced to come to an end yeah. that he's not really been in control of. 
and the music scene, especially the metal scene, was altered forever. Fans rushing onto the stage was not welcomed anymore, and in the beginning, at least, the musicians couldn't see them as anything except potential assailants. Yeah. Yeah, you can believe that, can't you? Yeah, you would. You'd be terrified if somebody started running onto the stage Mm -hmm. in the wake of this. People would. People would get on stage, they'd stage dive... Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian said, After something like that happens to one of your best friends, how could you ever feel safe anywhere, ever? The few times that kids have made it up onto the stage during our show, no matter how friendly the scenario, the first thing I think is, dude, you should not be on this fucking stage, you should know better. Um, And he also said... To me, everything changed after Dime was killed. The stage became off-limits for everyone but musicians. I don't give a fuck how much fun you're having. Stay the fuck off the stage. And I just thought, yeah, no wonder he's... Mm. Because you wouldn't want someone to get shot as a potential assailant even. Someone gets Mm. worried and then they shoot someone who was unarmed. Exactly, yeah. Let alone worrying that you might get shot. So at first, the police did think that Nathan Gale had shot Dimebag because he was convinced that the guitarist was responsible for breaking up Pantera. And Phil Anselmo had been making comments publicly about the rifts between him and the brothers, even saying to Metal Hammer that Dimebag deserved to be beaten severely. But the thorough police investigation ruled this out as a reason, and they finally determined, after months of looking at the case and taking over 287 eyewitness accounts, that Gale was a troubled schizophrenic who believed that the members of Pantera were stealing his thoughts. And his mum sort of said that she didn't think he was taking medication for the illness. His autopsy did confirm that no drugs were in his system. So I thought I would finish, because it's quite a tragic tale, and I thought I'd try and lighten it a little bit with a quote from Dimebag Darrell himself. And I'm sure this quote probably helped fans cope a little bit better after his death, knowing that he'd said this himself. He said, you know what happens to people who don't drink or smoke or exercise regularly? They die anyway. So crack a cold one, light up, crank the Pantera and get your pull. And I thought, (laughs) do you know what? I'll finish with that. I thought that was quite good. Well, thank you for listening, guys. As always, you can reach out to us in all of the usual ways. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. Um, and you can also support the show financially at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thank you for joining us once again, and we will be back next week. Bye. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy 
therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.